Culture and Psychology with Tabana. A very warm hello to our Radio Bomb Dot listeners. Um, I'm sitting with Dr. Daniel Rockers and Dr. Alex Andrade. This is Dr. Saida Malakafsali speaking. We have a very special guest today with us, Dr. Catherine Cruzer, who is a clinical and forensic neuropsychologist. Uh, she is a board member for California Psychological Association Division of Neuropsychology. Um, California Psychological Association is the largest association, psychological association in the entire country, and it has over 20,000 uh, members, psychologists uh, in the entire state. Um, Catherine is also a member of Sacramento Valley Psychological Association, which is a local association with over 200 members. And she also is the head of the behavioral medicine neuropsychology in that world. Um, and we are very happy to have her here. Good morning, Catherine. Welcome Good morning. to our program. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. Yeah, glad so, you're here. Yeah. So I give it to the hands of Dr. Rockers or Dr. Andrade so they can start asking questions from Dr. Cruiser. I think Daniel, Dr. Daniel always loves to jump in. <laughs> Daniel's a jump in kind Daniel of guy. Daniel starts with question. That's the norm we have. We always uh, hear Dr. Rockers asking questions. So I like to start with a question from Dr. Cruiser. Do we want a hard question or a softball question first? Um, gosh, softball question. How Let's, softball. Get Let's welcome okay. her the right way. <laughs> All right. Hey, tell us uh, what's, how did you get interested in neuropsych? Was that, did you start out in psychology with an interest there or was it something you acquired? I started out in my undergraduate studies at UC Davis in neurobiology, physiology, behavior. And that was the major that was most closely related to pre-medicine. And I thought oh. I was going to go be an MD. Okay. I was very interested in becoming an ophthalmologist at the end of the day. You want to be an goal. eye doctor. Yes. Yes. I was yeah. really fascinated by how disabling functionally it can be to not have vision. Can't drive, you know, can't do so many different things while also being remarkably capable and functional with different devices and things to kind of help uh, patients who don't have sight still get on in life. Um, but I was really fascinated by that and felt really compelled to work with patients who were not sighted. Um, but then I had hesitated and started thinking a little bit more broadly. Um, I was also studying psychology in undergrad. And with going to classes in psychology, but also having so much background with our pre-medicine classes, looking at models of humanness and being and wellness through the body, focusing so much on tissue and body and really concrete concepts about health. But then in the psychology courses, having such a different approach to understanding what wellness meant and what health meant, uh, going back and forth was really just really, I felt like I was in two different worlds. Um, and so after that, I had paused a bit. I didn't go on to med school and I started working for some neuropsychologists and some psychologists. And that really opened my eyes. I didn't even know neuropsychology was a field or was an area of practice at all until after the fact I started kind of working with with some who did this kind of work. Can you tell us really what is neuropsychology? Isn't psychology all the same? Isn't this psychology the same as that psychology? What's neuropsychology? Um, neuro, neuropsychology is a blend of looking at the brain, we focus on the brain and the brain's abilities, the brain's powers, the, the way that the brain functions in really specific ways, but blending that with the unique elements of a person. So in medicine, we really make an assumption because for the most part, it's true that on the inside, we're basically the same. Our tissues are the same. The organs are in the same spot, different parts of the brain between all of us pretty much are doing the same thing across all of us, but we look really different on the outside. Um, but when I blend those concepts with psychology, everybody's interests and moods and 
choices that they make day to day can influence directly in a unique way how their brain is functioning. Um, so a neuropsychologist focuses on measuring the different ways that the brain is working or more importantly, is not working very well. And then try to interpret that through the lens of what is unique about this individual that's in front of me. Okay. So my other question is, are the devices other than all the interaction you have with your patients that you get more information? I know there are so many um, you know, uh, medical tools that we use in finding out about the physical issues, but are there tools for um, the brain as well? Yes. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assume what you mean is like the instruments that I might be using to try uh, to measure. Yes. yes. I have hundreds of different instruments that are designed to measure certain things that the brain can do. So I may be looking at language abilities, how well a patient is understanding things that I'm saying. And I may be saying simple things. How well can they understand that? I might be saying really complicated things. I might be reading something or asking them to read something. I'll be measuring using other instruments, how quickly a person is thinking about something that's simple or how quickly somebody's thinking about something that's really complex. I may give a person as much time as they need to do a certain task. I may give uh, somebody a really limited amount of time to do a different kind of task. Um, so at the end of the day, I'm using hundreds of data points. Like I have hundreds of numbers that I'm gathering uh, to look at and measure all the different pieces of how the brain is working. So analogy I like to use is um, a lot of us, you know, we bring our car into like the shop and these, you know, companies offer us like an 80 point engine check, you know, where they're looking at all these different elements of how our engine's working. I do the same thing, only it's like 280 point check <laughs> of different things that the mind can do. Um, maybe drawing uh, or constructing something uh, or trying to predict certain things, solving different kinds of puzzles, looking at pictures and trying to find patterns um, or like it just goes on and on and on. Lots of memory game, you know, memory, I say games, I try to, you know, frame it like a game to patients. So it's not so intimidating, um, but what sometimes it can feel connect to the brain and then you will watch what's going on on the screen. Um, sorry, say that again. Well, I said, how about the tools that you connect um, to the brain and then you monitor through screen to see what's going on? Yes. Um, so there are some more biomedical devices like that. So some of those devices that you're referencing, you're kind of motioning towards your scalp there. There may be EEGs or uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation devices or different kinds of other things that are more looking at brain activity, neurological activity. Those kinds of devices are a bit more medical. I'm going to be looking at devices uh, that are more focused on what that brain's thinking power is on and what the result is after the patient is thinking through something or thinking about something. Um, so I don't measure the neurological activity directly like a neurologist would or another specialist. I'm more looking at pa uh, paper, you know, things that they're drawing for me or things that they're saying uh, to me with their speech. I appreciate the distinction too. I find a lot of times in psychology, people just think of the tests or assessments that we administer as just, you know, questionnaires. And so it sounds like it's a little, sounds almost like it's more interactive in that way. Yes, that's a great distinction. Most psychologists will be using uh, tests, I'm using air quotes, tests, which are based on what the patient is thinking about themselves, the way that they're going to answer questions like how sleepy I am or how anxious I might be feeling. Those are all opinions that the patient is having about themselves. I'm looking a little bit deeper at how quickly you're answering those questions, whatever the output is. I'm looking at what mistakes you might be making, the things that you're paying attention to, uh, things like that. Uh, are you able to kind of solve like different kinds of puzzle problems? So it might feel a little more academic sometimes in my tests than it is looking at um, how a patient might be reflecting or kind of thinking or developing subjective opinions about their internal world. Although I certainly ask about all of that as well, because how a patient is feeling emotionally can impact their thinking power. Let's bring this into kind of more everyday realm. A lot of psychologists and 
when people hear about psychology, they often think, oh, we're working on only problems that people have. And they don't think much about people working above the line, so to speak, that they want to improve performance, like sports psychology or yes. psychology. Does neuropsychology, is that only with people having some sort of problem or pathology, or is it used in other ways as well? We work with patients who are professional athletes. Maybe there's an injury that might happen. Uh, maybe there's an emotion, like sports psychology often has neuropsychology blended in, performance anxiety. Uh, different things that we might be trying to do can be impacted by our brain power. So most patients I see will fall into like one of two camps. One, they're having a psychological experience that's getting in the way of their brain's ability to do what it's trying to do. So that might be looking like performance, uh, freezing up because you're anxious, but you need to give a big speech uh, or you're very stressed and you can't think as well. You're feeling a bit disorganized at work. And so your performance is falling and you're getting in trouble at work or something like that. You can't keep track of different things. You're forgetting to take your medication. The second camp will be something happened to the brain tissue itself. Some kind of injury happened, a traumatic brain injury, maybe a toxic exposure, um, maybe a stroke or some degenerative medical condition like a dementia type disease uh, or some other tissue damage happened. And then that's translating into problems with the brain's ability to do what it needs to do for its age. Um, and so patients will come to me asking for clarification on what's going on, what brain abilities are still intact, what brain abilities are not working as well. And then also asking me for answers. Well, what can I do now? What's my prognosis for, is this going to get better over time or is this going to get worse over time, et cetera? Uh, the aspects I was going to just share real quick. One of the aspects that I found really interesting with neuropsychology is almost just like this investigative kind of approach to the work that you do. And so it can be very like, intriguing. It's like a, a CSI, you know, case each time. Yes. And so there can be a lot of kind of like questions that you're trying to answer and solve. So I find a lot of times that neuropsychologists, you guys are really interested and really invested in trying to understand the case and in, in, in a way that you can help the person function or improve functioning as well. Yes. We have to look at variables of a personal history, education history, childhood trauma history, social health history, et cetera, native history, cultural history, belief systems, the psychological history, their current mental health as they're seeing me in session. Also their cognitive abilities, as I kind of talked about all those different measurements, but also the medical history. I got to know about the different conditions, how those medications they might be taking could be impacting their brain abilities. So I feel like when I look at all the different types of medical professionals, we're consolidating thinking abilities plus medicine, body, you know, body health, as well as mental health all together. I think I can't think of another medical professional that really focuses so intensely on all three of those domains at once when providing an opinion. Uh, one of the questions I had, I know we got to our first break, um, and I think it's an important question since I know a lot of our listeners are at the age that sometimes are worried about their memory and whether they have um, Alzheimer's because our information about some of the um, title of issues we hear about like Alzheimer's, dementia. Uh, when we come back from the break, I would like you to uh, make um, very, um, I mean, make it clear in a very simple way so that our listeners can understand what the difference is and also different types of uh, memory issues. Um, so uh, I just say some words in Farsi. Dr. Daniel Rockers Dr. Alexander Dr. کاترین کروزر هستش که ایشون نوروسایکولوژیست هستن و ما صحبت مفصلی در بخش اول برنامه داشتیم برمیگردیم سالهای مفصلی از ایشون داریم خواهش میکنم اگر صدای ما رو به زبان انگلیسی از رادیو بامداد میشنوین از کسانی که از برنامه ما استفاده میکنن دعوت کنین به برنامه ما گوش بدن برمیگردیم و دنباله صحبتمون رو ادامه میدیم
are back with Dr. Daniel Rockers and Dr. Alexandradi and our guests today, Dr. Catherine Cruiser. And if you just turn on your radio and you're listening to us, um, we um, talked about what is neuroscience uh, with our guests today. And um, she explained um, what neuroscience is and in a simple way and what she does with the patients. And um, just before to go to the break, I asked her when we come back from the break, if she could distinguish between different issues we always hear, like somebody has dementia, somebody has Alzheimer. What is it that we lose our memories? Should I be worried about it? Is there any way I can prevent it? And here we are with Dr. Cruiser, and she's going to respond to these questions. All right. Thank you so much. Um, so I understand you're asking me about um, maybe just to speak on what might be normal aging in terms of what memory looks like and memory loss versus other diseases or conditions where the memory loss is more intense and might be problematic to the level of maybe even needing to go to a neuropsychologist. Do I understand that right? Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay. That's a really great question. A lot of the patients I work with are exactly wondering that. Uh, some of my cases are saying, you know, oh, my husband or me as a patient, it's just not really remembering things the way that I think I'm supposed to making mistakes. Like where are my keys or can't remember certain elements of recipes anymore. Uh, might even be forgetting things like the names of neighbors or names of certain distant relatives, or maybe even other relatives that aren't so distant, <laughs> um, forgetting things like what somebody said, if family member said something just yesterday, and then now you're kind of wondering what, and then you ask again, and your family members might be getting annoyed with you too, thinking, I just told you this, you know? Um, so as we age, our memory system is supposed to get a bit weaker. I'm talking um, above 60, above 70, in some cases, even older than that, when symptoms of memory loss that looks a little bit stronger than just small errors during the day uh, tends to set on. And the sixth decade or the, in the 60s, that tends to be where a pivot will happen if it's going to happen in terms of our generation now. Now, if I said this 100 years ago, I probably would have given you some younger ages or 200, 300 years ago. But for this point in time, we generally start looking at the sixth decade decade is normalizing some memory loss. Um, so what a neuropsychologist will do to determine, well, what's the difference? Is this normal air quotes, normal, uh, or might this be something more intense and signaling a disease process? We'll be looking at, um, the nature of some of the memory complaints. Uh, for example, are we forgetting things that, uh, are more remarkable? How much time went by when, uh, you forgot what, say, your partner said to you. Is this a matter of a couple of minutes or is it the next day? Uh, so I start looking at complaints uh, that somebody in the family may say or the patient themselves may say uh, in terms of how intense it starts looking. More importantly than that, though, uh, I use my instruments and the results of my instruments and the measures that I take will be compared to people of similar age. So if I'm looking at how well somebody is going to be remembering a story that I tell them uh, or a list of words, I'm going to be comparing their ability to do that uh, correctly to other people their age, and in some cases to other people with similar education levels, because sometimes that can matter. Um, and if their scores are not looking too good compared to where at least the tests and the research that informed those tests say they're supposed to be, then we start looking at, okay, this might be something more than just normal aging. What I find too is a lot of times once the memory uh, problems start emerging and becoming more noticeable, patients can feel worried and start feeling anxious because that's not how they've been, especially people have been say high level jobs, really successful in work settings. And there's a lot of demands and a lot of stress um, and they start making mistakes and that causes anxiety and anxiety can worsen memory. Um, so I have to also, as a neuropsychologist, pay attention to are these memory issues something that the brain is doing even when it's not feeling anxious or does this seem to be pretty situational? Um, that was actually my next question that you answered. Um, so when do you think, um, well, first of all, Alzheimer is a genetic, but a person who has Alzheimer at earliest stages, do they realize that there's something wrong with their memory or not? 
I would say not always. And some research is coming out that shows the markers and the signs of an Alzheimer's disease that will emerge later starts 20, 30 years before the, di- the final diagnosis comes, which is much, much later, usually in the 60s for the large majority of patients. Sometimes it's earlier, 40s, 50s. Um, so signs and symptoms start in the thirties or forties for a lot of those patients. And this is cutting edge, you know, kind of research. I can't be more specific on exactly what that means, uh, because it's not something I'm as well read on right now, but there's a lot of longitudinal studies that accept patients usually starting at age 40, not earlier, where they start tracking you in different brain abilities, starting at that decade. And then see over time, they say the next 30 years, whether or not you ultimately develop an Alzheimer's or other type of dementia, there's like over a dozen different types of dementias. Um, but once you get to the level where a neuropsychologist can confirm, yes, this looks this combination of troubles that you're having, which is more than just memory. Um, looks like an Alzheimer's disease process. Um, that process has been in that, that process has longstandingly been in development for a couple of decades for that patient. And I would say, although there is a genetic element, it's not always the case that some of the genetic markers that we know of now that can say at least there's a correlation. If a person has XYZ type of genomic makeup, there's an increased risk for developing Alzheimer's, but it's not a guarantee. I think this speaks to, as you mentioned, the idea of normal. I think it's something we're always constantly questioning and even talking about on our show in regards to how people make sense of that. And I think when it comes to things like memory, like you said, it, it maybe it's like friends or family members who are maybe annoyed or frustrated or the person themselves. And like you said, even the idea that these things, these markers are maybe showing up earlier. I think it also speaks to how people try to adapt and try to navigate Uh, functioning, even with these challenges and difficulties. I think it's one of the hardest things for people to admit that they're struggling in some ways. And so I find a lot of times people will compensate in order to kind of navigate everyday life. Um, And and sometimes they can be successful, but I think just like, you know, uh, therapists or counseling, as well as probably a neuropsych, you know, people probably aren't going to come to see us until there's a really uh, you know, very clear problem. It's starting to interfere in multiple aspects of life. Uh, do you find that uh, maybe similar to like counseling or therapy? People are a little reluctant to see a neuropsychologist or do you feel like people are a little bit more open to that? I've seen it look a little differently. Um, it seems like some patients have a little easier time pointing to a body-based cause for troubles rather than a psychological-based one. Um, so if there's a disease process that's active uh, or, a, you know, or an injury, a specific injury that happens, say like a stroke uh, or some other types of brain tissue injury that's occurring, patients seem to have an easier time submitting themselves to the examination, submitting themselves to being analyzed and measured and even, you know, kind of attributing, okay, that makes sense. I'm, I'm having a hard time staying focused when I'm listening to my partner or when I'm watching this certain movie uh, well, it's because of the brain injury uh, versus in psychotherapy settings. Sometimes there can be some resistance to even come to the session in the first place because <laughs> uh, that requires other elements of taking responsibility or experiencing you know, curiosity about the self, uh, a motivation or a wish to, to try to get in there and see what I as a person can do to get to a different place of wellness or health in my personal life. Um, but I've also seen in certain types of brain uh, dysfunction, there is not an awareness of having brain dysfunction. So certain brain injuries, the patient really will present as very impaired, but they will report to you. Oh, I'm fine. What do you mean? There's no problem here. Um, that's a condition called anosognosia, but it basically means that sometimes the self-awareness can be so low that the patient won't be initiating care. And so medical providers in their life or, or people in their personal life will be the ones prompt, prompting them to go in and, and be seen. Yeah, I completely agree in, in the acceptance of the medical piece. Uh, I've worked in primary care settings. A patient is requesting our services now. Oh, no, no, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's great timing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, at working in primary care settings myself, I've seen patients you know, kind of trust the relationship from their medical doctor and make them more open to talking about psychological things. So I completely agree that that there there seems to be a little bit more 
comfort or ease in focusing on the body or the physiological aspect versus maybe the psychological aspect. I want to add too that in many uh, brain-based issues can still be very painful to experience because there's in most cases not an outside marker for the problem. So I still like to phrase to my patients that these kinds of injuries are still an invisible injury, much like psychological issues are. I can't look at a person and see their blood pressure. I can't look at a person and see, you know, that they're having an attention issue. I mean, necessarily, if I'm being really casual about it, you know, Um, but if I see a cast on an arm, oh, you know, immediately I can respond and think, okay, this person's experiencing an injury and patients often feel very isolated and misunderstood. Family members quickly forget that there's a brain issue uh, in patients and experience can experience a lot of frustration and compassion fatigue. Uh, And so I have a lot of compassion and, you know, kind of uh, warm feelings of, of concern and empathy for my patients who are not in the most supportive environment because it's it's kind of easy to forget um, that they're they're having a true issue. Um, like, what? sorry, sorry, what? I just want to add, like, just making me think, like, for patients with dementia, as you brought up earlier, um, especially in the early stages where it's not as blatant and obvious to other people in the family. They're they're kind of in in the earlier or the middle stages where they're speaking very comfortably and seems everything's going great. You know, it's family gathering or something. And then all of a sudden, you know, the memory issue uh, is visible. Um, Like patients, they're experiencing these issues. They don't mean to forget. They're not trying to be forgetful on purpose. Um, And so I try to, you know, provide a lot of support and and counseling for family members of patients who are experiencing some trouble to just say, remember, you know, don't take it personally. Um, they're not trying to be this way. This is just how their brain is working. That they're doing the best they can. That reminds me of one of my favorite terms to confabulation, where people will seem agreeable. And, and I've seen it where people are like, yeah, 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 they, that works good. Then you're like, wait, like, like, for example, like, oh, what'd you think of that? And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was <laughs> right. And then you're like, wait a minute, like, what, what am I talking about? And then they're, yeah, 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 yes. yeah. And so, <laughs> well, that, you know, that can be troublesome too, because in certain disorders, say the chronic alcoholism, it's very, very, very severe. And in much later stages, that can lead to a certain kind of dementia like condition. And confabulation can be very troubling because they'll think that they paid bills that they never paid, or they think that they've, you know, taken care of a certain responsibility that never happened, but they present as so convinced of themselves that you just, you want to believe them. (laughs) Um, So yeah, that's. It can lead to that frustration you were talking about probably from others. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, And my other question, uh, Dr. Cruiser, now that we have you, we keep asking. Sure. uh, Yeah. Because I know um, some of the people I have worked with, they had a parent who had Alzheimer. And I know it's the variation of genetic, um, is it APOE uh, gene um, in chromosome 19 that um, is uh, causing the Alzheimer. So they're worried that because one of the parents had Alzheimer, how many percentage is um, chance of getting to the children offspring? You know, I'm sorry, I don't want to say certain numbers because the truth is I'm just not sure. But I will say regarding the allele, you can have a a single allele or both alleles. I'm a single allele carrier, actually, APOE4. So I would say that maybe the children could, you know, get genetic tested and see what their allele carrier status is. Um, And that would probably be where I would go first. A single allele, I used to know the numbers in terms of the correlation. It's not causation, but the correlation between being a single allele versus double allele carrier and the likelihood of an onset of an Alzheimer's or other dementia condition condition later soars much higher if you're a double allele carrier. That's as much as I can say. The truth is I'm not sure of those numbers. Um, The the other question is, um, can you prevent it? Can you do anything to, if let's say, you know, um, is there any way you can help yourself? Um, Well, I would say the 
best thing to do would be to do everything you can to be physically as healthy as possible. Hydration is a very strong issue amongst patients with, uh, I mean, Alzheimer's is a vascular issue. And so having the best vascular health that you can, regular exercise, good hydration, good diet, do the best that you can to gain good sleep quality. Um, but there are, you know, theories that once we have a genetically loaded condition, once you're on the path, that's your path. And it may happen to, you know, you know, no matter what, I think that's a little bit sinister <laughs> and a little more cynical that I like to think, you know, cause we want to have hope. We want to feel a sense of control when we can't predict. And we feel like we can't control something that anxiety increases. Um, so in order to maybe reduce some of that anxiety, I would just focus on body health as much as possible, especially vascular health. And is there any hope that with all the medical research and all the psychological research, neuroscience research, and all this medication out there, is there any hope that they can um, fix this issue? I believe there is cutting edge research that's looking at certain, not only abilities to test what is the biological environment inside of the brain to then target certain proteins that are acting up and clumping up uh, to, you know, administer certain medications that target those and eliminate those. Uh, but I hesitate to, you know, express confidence that those are going to be available in any, you know, immediate future. Um, a lot of the research, as I understand it right now, is working on diagnosing with more confidence. My tests still are a bit limited in how much I can confirm whether or not it's, especially earlier stages of a dementia process, if it's X dementia versus Y versus Z. Again, there's like over a dozen different types. Um, uh, but right now, a lot of the research is on making sure that there's a correct diagnosis first um, before we start talking about medications. Once you're to the level of the dementia process where the symptoms are very, very intense and very strong, uh, at this point, you're, the patient's so kind of deep into the process that it's really hard to go backwards. So you're more focused on just trying to maintain mental health uh, and provide support and just kind of let the process unfold. Most of the interventions are happening in third decade, fourth, fifth, right in thirties to fifties, where you got to focus again on some of the things that I did mention. There's always some um, medication trials that are coming out, focusing on different elements of brain health, vascular health, but I haven't myself heard of, you know, big overwhelming confidence that it's going to be preventative. For our listeners who don't know much about um, the details of um you know, what is vascular? So I'm sure there are listeners who are wondering when you say vascular health, uh, I know we got to another break. Maybe when we come back from the break, you can talk about that. Absolutely. Shenvandegana Aziz Radio Bamdad, Imruz Behamrah Dr. Rakers, Dr. Andradi, Dar Khidmatun Hassim, and Dr. Saide Malik Afsali Hassam. مهمان امروز برنامهمون دکتر کاترین کروزر هستن و ایشون تخصصشون در زمینه نوروسایکولوژیست هستش مسالات زیادی داشتیم به دلیل اینکه فکر کردیم شاید براتون جالب باشه راجب مسائلی که همیشه برای همه مخصوصا کسانی که سنشون میرسه به یه مراحلی که نگران فراموشکاری هستن آیا دمنشیا دارن الزایمر دارن ما به این با دکتر کروزر صحبت کردیم یک تنفس کوتاه میگیریم برمیگردیم دنباله صحبتمون رو ادامه میدیم
are back with Dr. Rockers, Dr. Andrade, and our guest today is Dr. Catherine Cruiser, who is a neuropsychologist uh, at the two sessions. If you missed and you just turned on your radio, we talked about dementia, we talked about Alzheimer, we talked about what is neuroscience. And because I know many of the listeners might be interested in so many of the details of these issues, and I wish we had interaction, um, people could call us and ask questions. But if you have any questions, you can uh, send a message, email and ask um, your questions that maybe we can talk to Dr. Cruiser and get back to you. But at this point, we left uh, before the break um, because I know you might be interested to know what is vascular health. So Dr. Cruiser is going to talk about that. Yes, thank you so much. Um, so when I mean vascular, I mean heart health. Um, our vascular system is where our bl- it's really the veins and the arteries where that are carrying our blood. And the healthier our blood is, and our blood is healthier or less healthy based on diet, based on exercise, other kinds of things like that. Um, The healthier that system is, it's what's feeding the brain and really powering and allowing the brain to be able to do what it needs to do. And certain conditions like stroke, where blood is not able to access certain brain tissues uh, or in aging conditions, certain uh, blood pressure related conditions uh, or other kinds of disease processes get in the way of blood reaching its destination. Um, and in uh, certain types of dementia disorders, part of what's going on is related to access of blood to certain tissue areas. I know this is more like medical fields, but I'm sure because it's your profession, you might be able to answer. So when we talk about blood pressure, what is the difference between high blood pressure and low blood pressure in vascular health? Would any of this be more dangerous or um, affects our vascular health? Which one is worse or is it both not good for the health of the physical body? You know, certain elements of what I'm going to say, I want to make sure I defer to my you know, medical experts <laughs> that, are, that are physicians. Uh, but in my experience, uh, we want to be more concerned with high blood pressure. So if you think about like our garden hose, as our vascular system, our arteries and our, and our veins, if the water going through the hose is too strong and we have a kink in the hose, we maybe have all kind of experienced that um, where we almost hear the backup sound of the pressure through the faucet and it's almost a scary sound and we unkink the hose and everything kind of rushes through. There are certain things that can be going on inside of the, the hose, if you will, our arteries different buildup, different plaque disorders, again, going back related to just genetic predisposition to have healthier arteries or veins than others, diet related things, other kinds of diseases impact the integrity or the health of our vascular internal structure. And as the blood is trying to flow through, it changes pressure along the whole kind of garden of the system. And when blood is too low pressure in certain areas or certain pockets of the brain, Um, then the likelihood that the good, healthy uh, pieces of the blood are not reaching the tissue can lead to some really mild symptoms. You wouldn't even notice it. There's no official stroke or anything like that, but it's just not really as sharp uh, thinking abilities in certain areas. And certain parts of the brain are more vulnerable to these than others. It's called a watershed area. Um, And that's just a term for, like, if you think about a garden, uh, when we have this kind of sprinklers going out, say across a grassy area, can kind of think about that as an analogy for the blood kind of reaching different tissue area as well. And certain tissues are closer to the sprinkler head than others. And so those kind of patches of grass that are just on the edge of where that sprinkler is kind of reaching, the blood pressure needs to be high enough to kind of basically water that area of the land, if you will. But if the blood pressure is low, then you have kind of patches of grass that's not getting fed enough. It's the same in the brain. So there really are consequences to having blood pressure be too low. Um, 
other issues with that, I'll defer to my medical doctor friends, but with high blood pressure, there can be other consequences like risk for stroke, where you have some maybe blockage inside of your blood vessels and, you know, blood pressure being too high could lead to uh, bleeding out in a certain area. The blood pressure is high. So it kind of pushes and applies pressure in certain areas like pinch points inside of the system. And then you may have a breakage in the wall of the vessel. And then you kind of have this bleeding out experience. Um, and that's called a hemorrhagic stroke. There's different kinds of strokes. Um, so I th- there's consequences in, in different ways. Uh, yeah. I appreciate you sticking with that gardening metaphor. That was awesome. You, you like, you must have a, a, a wonderful yard or a wonderful garden too, <laughs> just the way you talked about the importance of watering. I just want to say that. <laughs> Thanks. Water your garden. <laughs> Yes, that's the all point. corners. Yeah. <laughs> yes. What's the what do you think is the most important thing in terms of yourself that you learn from this work? Like, what have you learned about yourself or tell us something, if you can, a little more personal. What's something that you've learned that makes a difference in your life from this? Um, I, in terms of myself, I've really been able to think about my own brain ability. I mean, naturally, my own brain abilities. Uh, I can recognize what strengths I have, but also normalize what is average about me or what's even weak about certain things that my brain can or can't do. And, and without having kind of the vocabulary, if you will, to kind of name and really deeply look at, you know, different things, I don't think I'd know. A lot of us focus on our weaknesses. Oh, I'm not good at drawing or I'm not good at sports. I'm not good at sports, <laughs> um, but I'm really great at language or, you know, certain other things. And I felt like I've been able to focus a lot on humility of, yep. I have these particular uh, things about what my brain can do that are really strong and I can celebrate that, uh, but also recognize and normalize that it's true. There really are certain things that I'm just so unremarkable at being able to do or think through. Um, and through this work, I feel like that's not an area for me to being, be critical or be self-critical or kind of beat up myself on or get anxious about uh, because it's very normal. I've seen just thousands and thousands of patients. And over time, I really have gained a grasp of what really is kind of normal variants and different things and just naturally different things that seem to come natural to people looks really different across everyone. Um, and so I've gained a, a bit of humility, if you will, around the things that are unremarkable about me. And it's okay. Do you think it's like coming to accept your own normality in a way? Yes. Yes. And gosh, being a doctor, there's a lot of pressure in society, right? There's these elevations of, well, you're supposed to be like globally smart. You have this fancy degree and there's these assumptions that get loaded onto you, really a responsibility that gets loaded onto you. Um, And so kind of pushing back on that and normalizing, nope, I'm just like you. I'm so just like you in so many different ways. Um, yeah. I think patients really kind of appreciate that stance too. It's makes you more relatable. Are the patients that you see, it sounds like it's a lot of people with head injury is how important is it for them to accept their own normality? You know, like what we're talking about, yes, they have some deficits from their injury, but do you think how important is that? How big a piece is that in someone, someone's identity, how they see this? What I've found is because most of my patients are coming in trying to address some pivot in the negative, some kind of deficit they're experiencing subjectively. And it's not really, I get patients where their scores, I just had one a couple of weeks ago, superior level scores, excellent, but they're experiencing themselves as not good enough. Um, most of my patients though are really experiencing severe losses in brain abilities, varies like can't go back to work heavily dependent on their partner. And those issues, those changes seem to be more naturally of the focus versus the elements that were kind of normal or maybe a relative weakness for them the whole time. Um, So most of the reactions in the areas of focus for my patients are on what's different now. I feel I'm supposed to be operating at this level, but now I'm not, I can't remember. I can't pay attention. I'm losing things. And they're, they're really focused on what seems different. And for some patients who usually are like the most vulnerable psychologically area I've seen where it's just so crushing to have a change or be our patients where their children are not yet out of the home. 
Uh, teenagers usually a lot of pressure of, you know, making sure everything in the home is still functioning well. Kids are just on that cusp of making life decisions and they're about to leave the home. There's a lot of pressure in work, maybe a recent promotion or that phase of the career where you're elevated in title and you're responsible for a lot. So there's just in general, a lot of pressure on a person to perform, to think and be organized and perform. Um, injuries that happen in that phase seem to be the most emotionally devastating because patients feel like they can't provide anymore. They can't provide as much. And there's so much to lose. How many of those people are, and maybe you can speak to this briefly, the people who are high performing and then they have some loss, but even with that loss, they're still high performing but they come down on themselves because yes. I, it's not what I used to do. And everybody else looking around and say, what's your problem? Yes. You're more than me. Yes. And I have something to add to that. A lot of the patients that I work with are filing lawsuits related to these changes and say, if there's a work injury, they can't perform anymore, you know, and many people would love to have their profile. And I say that, I mean, the, the, their brain abilities. So after I measure everything, I chart it all. And it's this big table of a bunch of numbers that basically like grades, if you want, I'm kind of grading the different brain abilities you have. And let's say somebody still has, they went from A pluses to A minuses. <laughs> That's still better than most people. And they'll complain still. I, I mean, I would too. A lot of times patients who are extremely talented with really high level of thinking power, any loss is often really emotionally devastating as well. And there tends to be this, this extra layer of their self-awareness of their ability is so high because they're used to operating at a high level that they can articulate as well what their losses are versus somebody who, you know, maybe a little bit more average or they focus on other things in life and aren't focused on like certain you know, thinking powers or thinking abilities, you know, um, and certain kind of losses that aren't really felt to them because the day-to-day they're focused on other kinds of things like more physical labor jobs or some other kind of thing. Um, so they're not even as necessarily self-aware. So the patients with that come into an injury with really high functioning tend to be very, very upset and can have a hard time really caring or having empathy with other people who might still wish that they had their brain power, even though they're injured, you know, like those A minus grades, like they would love to have those A minus grades. And if I reflect that back to those types of patients, they don't tend to take it well. <laughs> they don't care. That's like, I used to be a plus and they're so powerful. So this kind of sense of p- loss and power uh, is felt more when you had more power in the first place. Well, they're probably not as used to failing either. That's right. Because they have so much horsepower. They're- That's right. That's right. We have talked to the past. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say we have um, in the past many times in our conversation with Dr. Rockers and Dr. Andrade, we talk about acceptance. And, um, you know, when you don't accept, you're fighting. You're fighting with yourself and you have a hard time to even just... um, you know, go through what you're going through in order to get better. Most of your energy is um, being used to fight what, um, you know, has happened. And we often talk about, um, even though it's difficult, it's easy to say, but when uh, you used to do so many things on your own, and now you are in a situation that you need to get help, it's difficult. So, um, Acceptance probably is the only way at the beginning you can deal with your issue. Yes. Yes. I think the phases through grieving a sense of loss, I I contextualize acceptance in in the context of of a grieving process. Um, It can really take, take a while for a patient to get to that level and what that might mean for them in their journey to coming through. Sometimes I'll see patients early on in an injury say after a stroke and they're so early in the process, they're not able to walk independently. They're still engaging in a lot of physical rehabilitation and there can still be this halo of hope 
because they're physically still in the process of recovery and they have an action plan. Okay. I've got 12 more sessions of physical therapy, then we'll reassess and everything seems to still be in a phase of improvement. Well, the physical body heals at a certain pace and the brain heals at a different pace for everybody. Um, and so I noticed that there's this kind of vulnerable phase of if your mind stops getting better, uh, after this injury, you might start having a lot of emotional trouble later. Once you experience yourself as no longer getting better. Uh, but earlier on in the process, there's a lot of hope still and a lot of positive energy. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. It's six months, but six months goes by and you're still having trouble, you know, saying words correctly or, you know, remembering certain things. And so I sometimes hold out, like, let's get you into some maybe counseling now or some psychotherapy right now, before you get to that kind of hopeless phase or scared phase later. And that seems to help a lot. I know Dr. Andrade, you had a question and I jumped in. Do you remember what it was? Uh, no, no, no. It was along the lines. I remember. Of what you, yeah, no. I it was along the lines. Evaluation. No, no, no. I was going to say it's along the lines of what uh, we've already discussed. So, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, one point I, I, I got distracted myself um, uh, in making was uh, about patients who are litigating their injuries. So that going back to that patient who was from an A plus to an A minus. In the context of being judged by outsiders as, well, you're still intact. Your, your speech is fine. Uh, you know, you can still work. It can be a lot of invalidation feelings um, by patients who experience different things. And, and in the legal, kind of the, co the collision of the legal system with what we do, um, sometimes there's a real sinister uh, spirit of one side of the case is really kind of invalidating or you're trying to tackle or, or judge or challenge the patient's representation of their own experience. And that itself can also be very stressful naturally uh, and very challenging for patients to experience um, because this is their life. They're the expert on themselves, you know, in some way uh, they know themselves, they know what they were able to do before they know what's different now. Um, and that challenge that we as neuropsychologists have and trying to really get in there and name it, understand it deeply and being able to articulate it and tell the patient's story in our terms, um, is really a beautiful process. I think, uh, it's part of the thing that really inspires me to work in this field. Um, and yeah, so just want to acknowledge that sometimes, uh, injuries don't look as remarkable to people on the outside and, they're really devastating internally for patients. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Dr. Catherine Cruz. Uh, and if I forgot to say that she's the chair of the conference that is coming, and um, we definitely would like to have her come back. And I'm sure you have many questions. You can send your questions and we'll bring Dr. Cruiser back to our program. Uh, if Dr. Andrade and Dr. Um, Rockers don't have any final words to say, we can say goodbye to our listeners. I just wanted to thank Kat again for coming on the air. Really appreciate the information that you had. I think you made it very accessible. Uh, I, I think a lot of times, People think neuropsychologists, you know, even psychology, and it's like, whoa, it's this thing. And so, uh, yeah, thanks for those examples and, and explaining these things uh, to, to us as well. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah, I think I might have gone from an A minus to a B plus. Do you have any <laughs> suggestions for me? I've seen you deteriorate, Daniel, during the course I, of the conversation. I've seen it, that, you know, that deterioration. It happens near the end of these programs. Man, is there something wrong with me? This is really no. an intervention. Wait, we're, trying to get Kat to, to, we're trying to get Kat to assess you. That's why we really uh, called her Dan on the air. Daniel, I, I, I've got it opening next week, Daniel. I'll see you, see you in my <laughs> office. All right. <laughs> All right. Fabulous. Thanks. Kevin, I'll take him. He's not going to be able to remember. So it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thanks again, Kat. And uh, we hopefully see you again. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. Thank you.
باید از سر نوشت شاید این بار کمی بهتر نوشت عاشقی را غرق در باور نوشت قصه ها را از کجا این باور آمد که گفت گر روید سر بر نگردد سر جایین با برامد که گفت 
اگر رود سر بر نگردد سر نبه بسیمی از سر نبه بسیمی از سر نبه رادیو بامداد صدای ما و شما با زبانی آشنا